The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Dan Snyder spoke today. He spoke today publicly for the first time in over six months. The last time we heard from him, I think, was on 2222, the day they announced the new name, the day they unveiled all of the new branding. I think that's the last time we heard from Dan Snyder before this morning. Why he was speaking and what he said coming up, you will hear what he said. And the context in why, uh, around why he was speaking this morning. That's coming up here shortly on the show today. Uh, don't forget to rate us and review us, especially on Apple and Spotify. Apple in particular, if you can rate us five stars and write a quick one to two sentence review, it is a huge help. I want to start the show, and it was not the way I was intending on starting the show, but I read this email Uh, right before the show started. It came from Kevin. He wrote, Kevin, Wentz, Rivera, that's the list. Wentz has to be good. Rivera has to have been right on Wentz. If both of those things are true, it's 10-plus wins this year and for the next few years to come. Uh, Kevin... Thank you for the email. Uh, you can email me through the KevinSheehanShow.com website. You can also tweet me at DC if you're not following me on Twitter. Um, give me a follow, as they say in the trade, at KevinSheehanDC. Uh, and you can also, um, as mentioned, write us a review and ask us a question or make a comment as part of the review on Apple uh, if you'd like to do that. Um, so Wentz and Rivera, uh, of course... Of course, Wentz, a big of course. If Wentz doesn't play well, Washington's not going to have a good season, more likely than not. And we've had the conversations about this being, you know, a pressure year for Ron Rivera, a referendum year for Ron Rivera, uh, kind of a season for Ron Rivera where they better win more games than they lose or else. I don't know what the or else means. I personally don't see him getting fired. I think if Ron Rivera isn't the coach in 2023, it's because he retired after this upcoming season, not because he got fired. But I think a lot of the 
uh, faith that some in the fan base have. I have faith in him as a coach. Uh, I don't know if I have uh, yeah, I certainly don't have blind faith when it comes to his ability to be a lead personnel guy. He's never been that, and so far, not so good, really. Most of the key contributors on the team are still people who were picked prior to him getting here. I mean, the guy that we talked about all off season, who finally signed his contract extension, Terry McLaurin, wasn't selected by this group. But Antonio Gibson was, and others were. Um, but of course, this is a big year for Rivera. You know, he's kind of put it out there that this is year three and it's time to put up or shut up. It's time to get the ball rolling on a sustained run. Uh, so he's kind of put that added pressure on himself. Nobody was really putting it on him at the end of the season last year. In fact, the expectations after his first year were much higher than they were following this year. But year three was the year he really started to turn it around uh, and he started to win in Carolina and get to the playoffs on a regular basis over a five-year period. And he thinks that can happen this year. So we've had the conversation about referendum year, pressure year for Ron Rivera, et cetera, and the importance of Wentz. But it got me to thinking about players that have to have good years for this team to legitimately have a chance to win 10 or more games. Wentz is number one on that list. You know, there's not a close number two. If Wentz doesn't play well, this team's not going to be a good team because we know what's behind him. You know, we like Taylor Heineke. We love his gumption. We love his competitive spirit. We, I love his playmaking ability. If he starts the majority of games, they're not going to have a winning season more likely than not. I don't care about the improvement to the team around him. I don't care that the schedule is easier. He is not a bona fide NFL starting quarterback. He's a backup. So if you play Taylor Heineke because it doesn't work out with Wentz, they're not going anywhere. This year is a lost year. Wentz has to be good. The number one player on a short list of players that have to play well this year, if Washington's going to have a double-digit win season and contend for a playoff berth, is Carson Wentz. And as Coach Thompson would say, count five spots till you get to, until you get to number two because that's how distant number two is from number one. Wentz is number one. Now, it becomes a matter of sort of what you think is important and what kind of team and how how they'll play football and how they need to play football to win 10-plus games. It's kind of subjective after this. It's not debatable on Wentz being the number one influencer on a 10-plus win season this year. Um, but after that, um, I wrote down a short list of the players following Wentz that I think have to have really good seasons for them to have a chance to win double-digit games. Now, you know, if these guys don't play well, could they win eight games? Could they win nine? Could they be, you know, in contention until the final week of the season? Maybe. But to win double-digit, you know, games and have a legitimate good NFL season, 10-7, and 11-6, this list of of players, and it's really a very short list, they have to play well, in my opinion. These are people right now that if they don't play well, I think it will be really hard for them 
to win double-digit games. So number one is Wentz. Number two for me may surprise you because it's at a position that, you know, some have uh, kind of diminished in recent years in terms of importance, wide receivers, passing game, pass-happy league. I think Antonio Gibson has to have a really good season if Washington's going to win double-digit games. He's number two on my list. He's the first player after Wentz. I think Antonio Gibson has star potential. I think he's got much more star potential than Carson Wentz. I think in many ways his upside exceeds Terry McLaurin's. And I don't know about Jahan Dotson. I continue to hear things from camp that Dotson, for many people out there, has already proven he's legit NFL caliber, and he is, I was told by one person a few weeks back, and I shared this with you, he's the best receiver on the team. Uh, Antonio Gibson has, on offense, I think, the biggest potential in terms of becoming a real NFL star. I believe Terry McLaurin can be that. I believe Logan Thomas can be that. I think Jahan Dotson can be that. Curtis Samuel, all depends on health. Hard to really rely on that at this point. In terms of their offensive linemen, I think Cosme's got a chance to be a real NFL star, a Pro Bowl right tackle. Um, but Antonio Gibson, and I had Scott Turner. Hopefully you listened to Scott Turner. Uh, I had him on radio, and I played a lot of that back for you on Friday. I asked Scott Turner, how good can Antonio Gibson be? And this is what he said. You know, I'm not going to put any limitations on him because you're talking about a guy that had 33 carries coming out of college um, and has really carried the load for us now two years in a row. And you just see him getting better and better. Um, He needs to obviously, um, you know, take care of the the ball security issues. You know, we can't have the ball on the ground. Uh, And, you know, that that end of the year last year, you really saw – you know, his vision is continuing to get better. And the more reps he has, um, the better he's going to be. And he's just seeing it over and over again. And, and that's, uh, that's really, um, that's really where he can go because you talk about he's 230 pounds. Um, you know, he's, he's a, you know, four, four, close to being a sub four, four guy. Uh, he's hard to tackle, you know, and when he decides and he puts his foot in the ground, he can run through tackles. And then, and then, you know, he also is uh, – he can do a lot of things in the, in the passing game as well. Um, you know, he's got, he's got that background. So uh, I just – I think that, you know, the, the sky's the limit for Antonio, and, and we're just kind of seeing him scratch the surface. I loved hearing that from Scott Turner because, as many of you have heard me say previously – I like Antonio Gibson. Of course I don't like the fumbling, and the fumbling, if it continues to be a problem, he's not going to be on the field. And they drafted a running back in the third round. You don't draft running backs in the third round or earlier unless you think there's a legitimate chance of that player contributing sooner rather than later. But I think Gibson is everything Scott Turner believes uh, he can be. I think his potential is unlimited. I think he can be a massive star at the position. And I think he's got to have a good year 
because I think for Carson Wentz, you've got to have a running game and you've got to be balanced, and they've got a weapon in Antonio Gibson. If he reaches that potential and we see it over 17 games minus the fumbling, it's going to be massively impactful on the results of these games. Is he Derrick Henry? Is he Dalvin Cook? Is he Christian McCaffrey? I don't know. I don't think he's Derrick Henry. I think there are similarities in many ways to Christian McCaffrey. I think his vision improved. McCaffrey's got phenomenal vision. Uh, Unlike uh, McCaffrey, um, he's got a fumbling problem. McCaffrey doesn't. Uh, They both have had, obviously, McCaffrey major staying on the field and being available issues. Gibson has to make sure that he's available. But Gibson is one of the players on the team that, to me, has A-plus potential. True star potential. If Washington's going to win double-digit games this year, Wentz has to be good and Gibson has to be really good. I'm putting a lot of stock into a position that many of you would say, Sheehan, it's a pass-happy league. Well, I think Gibson can become a part of that as well, more so than he has in the past. But I could see Gibson being near the top of the league in rushing and, by the way, in total yards as well. Last year, Jonathan Taylor, all right, Carson Wentz's running back, led the league in total all-purpose yards. All right, he had over 2,000, had 2,171 to be exact, 1,811 rushing, 360 receiving. You had Najee Harris, who finished fourth. You had Austin Eckler, who finished seventh. Uh, You had guys like Mixon, you know, in the top 10. I think Antonio Gibson could be that. He's got to stay healthy. He can't put the ball on the ground. But he's got the potential to be, I think, an elite back in this league. So behind Wentz, I've got Gibson. And then after Gibson, because of Chase Young's injury and the expectations being dialed back, I have Montez Sweat. I think that John Allen is going to have a a John Allen kind of year. It wouldn't surprise me if Deron Payne, as Doc said, chasing the bag, uh, the bag full of money, as he's heading into a potential uh, unrestricted free agency year if the team doesn't franchise him. Um, I I think Deron Payne will have a good year. Montez Sweat is a game changer. Montez Sweat, without Chase Young, has to step up and be a monster at that position, not just as a pass rusher, but as a pass deflector, as a turnover creator. And he has the ability to be that. God, I love Montez Sweat. And I've loved his upside since Mississippi State. Many of you know I wanted them to take him where they took Dwayne Haskins. They got him by trading back into the first round. But Montez Sweat, is also an A-plus potential player. He's got to play up to his potential. If Carson Wentz, Antonio Gibson, and Montez Sweat all have excellent seasons, this team's got a chance to win double-digit games for the first time since 2012, and they've got a chance to win 11 games for the first time since 1991. Those three players would be my top three players in terms of players that must have big seasons 
for the team to threaten double-digit wins. Now, Chase Young would have been number two or number three on that list. Can't count on him. And there are other players that are very important. Look, if it's not Antonio Gibson, for all we know, but we don't know, which is why I'm not including him, it could be Brian Robinson. Maybe he's better than Gibson right now. Maybe he's so powerful and with the speed that they don't have to risk Gibson's fumbling issue. But Gibson's got talent, man. Sub 4'4", 6'2", 230 pounds. You heard Scott Turner. This guy was a receiver. He's just really starting to get comfortable. I think the the vision improved. Gibson, I don't know if he can be Derrick Henry. I don't know if he can be Jonathan Taylor. I don't know if he can be Christian McCaffrey. I don't know if he can be Dalvin Cook. I don't know if he can be Alvin Kamara. Different kind of back there, obviously. But I think he could end up being an A-plus back in this league. Top five, top seven in all purpose Yards, I hope that happens because I want to be right about Antonio Gibson uh, and I want to be right about Montez Sweat. And in many ways, Montez Sweat was such a key part of the 2020 run. He did not have a great season last year. But with that length, with that explosiveness, you know, you can't teach what Gibson and Sweat have. The physical talent, the explosiveness, the playmaking ability – You get excellent seasons from Sweat and Antonio Gibson added to one from Carson Wentz. You got a real good chance to have had a really good season. Uh, All right. I want to get to what Dan Snyder said earlier this morning. Snyder was presenting um, in front of the Maryland Lottery and Gaming Control Commission It's one of the steps required to get a gambling, a sports betting license, which they are trying to get for FedEx Field. Now, there were a bunch of these Maryland Lottery and Gaming Control people on a Zoom call. Dan did not Zoom in. He phoned in, and he made an introductory statement, and then no questions were asked of him after that. None. Uh, But here is what he said, and I think his first public comments in over six months. I just wanted to thank uh, uh, everyone at uh, uh, overall, uh, not only the Maryland Lottery uh, Gaming, but uh, just uh, Prince George's County, uh, where our stadium has been headquartered. And uh, I wanted to thank uh, 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 just uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, our stadium, we've uh, dramatically upgraded. We, we're encouraging everybody to come to uh, see all the changes we've done uh, to the stadium this year. I think it'll be quite impressive. We're going to have some uh, uh, big-time attendance shortly as uh, our staff, uh, our leadership team, Jason Wright and uh, Trista and the team have, have done an amazing job. So I, 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 uh, we're very, very optimistic also on the season. Uh, we we finally uh, have ourselves a quarterback. So, uh, but. Uh, I wanted to say uh, thanks to everyone. I really, truly appreciate this. He's hardly the greatest communicator uh, you've ever heard. Uh, But that aside, that was it. No questions were asked. Uh, These people could have asked him questions. They did not. Um, He is trying to land this license so that there is a sports book at FedEx Field. I'm sure they'd like to get that thing built 
uh, and up and running at some point this season. Uh, my guest, uh, Bennett Conlon, will give us kind of the, the, the best case timeline for a sports book at FedEx Field. They want a sports book at FedEx Field because they want anything and everything that will attract more people to FedEx Field, especially on game days. Now, my personal belief is a sports book at a football stadium like FedEx Field, where they have just eight to nine home games a year in the regular season, is not going to generate probably the kind of revenue that maybe they're projecting. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Capital One, you know, has a sports book right in the arena. It's in a high-density, high-foot-traffic area. Same thing with Nats Park. Uh, Same thing, I I believe, with the soccer stadium. Uh, What's it called? Audi Field. But uh, they're looking to create a business that is losing resilient. Mentioned that many times. Jason Wright has been tasked to build a business that is losing resilient. This is all part and parcel to that. Now, some of the other comments he made. Um, our stadium, he said, we've dramatically upgraded. We're encouraging encouraging everyone to come see all the changes we've done to the stadium this year. I think it'll be quite impressive. Uh, I, I don't know what those new stadium upgrades are. I don't know how much will be noticeable, um, but... You don't go to a stadium, at least a certain generation doesn't go to a stadium because of the upgrades at the stadium. You go to the stadium to see, hopefully, a winning football team. Winning and a good football team is still what matters. But I can't speak to the dramatic upgrades. Uh, I thought it was um, interesting to hear him say uh, we're going to have some big-time attendance shortly. As our staff, our leadership team, President Jason Wright and Senior VP of Operations, Trista Langdon, have done an amazing job. We're very optimistic also on the season, and we finally have ourselves a quarterback. And then he says, I just want to say thanks to everybody. I really, truly appreciate this. Um, So he's pushing the team a little bit, trying to get people excited even on this uh, Maryland uh, gaming control uh, call, excited about the team. Um, again, I don't know about the stadium upgrades. I don't know what kind of crowds they're going to have, big-time attendance, whatever that means. Um, I know that Jason and company have done a better job of selling tickets, and you know, I think, I, I think they're confident that they're going to have 50,000 or more for the Jacksonville game. I mean, look at what we're talking about, these numbers, but that would be a good opening day crowd for them considering where they were for a lot of the games last year. You know, they have a week three home game against Philadelphia. You know, some of what will hurt them this year in terms of attendance we've talked about before is just that their home schedule isn't stacked with some of the draws that it was last year. Remember, last year at home, I mean, they had – uh, you know, the Chargers and Justin Herbert. They had um, the Chiefs. They had Tampa. They had, you know, Brady. They had Mahomes. They had Russell Wilson. They had the Cowboys, who were always a big draw. Um, so they had some big name home dates last year. This year, it's Jacksonville, Philly, Chicago, Minnesota, Atlanta, 
the Giants, Cleveland, and the Cowboys. So they don't have that same ability. But I know that they have increased their overall ticket base, and they're expecting you know, north of 50,000 for the opener against Jacksonville on September 11th, nearly a month from today. Um, but uh, Snyder excited about the quarterback. You, you know, best finally, we finally have ourselves a quarterback. Finally, uh, we'll see about that, whether or not he's right about that. Um, all right. Uh, up next, um, some additional thoughts on Sam Mills and the firing of him yesterday. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. So I have a theory as to why Sam Mills was fired yesterday that I'll share with you here in a moment. It's not something that I learned from any conversation that I had after the podcast yesterday. But before I get to that theory, um, I just wanted to uh, read to you what Ron Rivera said today, 24 hours after he announced the firing of Sam Mills, his defensive line coach, and elevating um, Jeff Scanina into that position. Uh, a very energetic kind of coach. Rivera, the first question he was asked, on defensive line coach Jeff Scanina, uh, how much energy does he bring to that defensive line unit? And Rivera said, quote, 
Well, I think what I'm looking for is that constant push, pressure, and growth. I want to be more demonstrative. I want it to be more in their face, at them, stuff like that. And that's pretty much what we've accomplished, closed quote. And when he says what we've accomplished, I'm assuming what he's implying there is with the change from Mills to Scanina. And then he was asked, you know, what he's looking for from Scanina. He said, I'm looking for a different style, a different vibe, a little difference in my philosophy on how I think it needs to be coached. So Rivera speaking to like this philosophy, the way he wants the position coached, it's probably true. I'm not I'm not disputing that this is a, a big reason as to why he made the change, but it doesn't explain why he made it yesterday. He obviously knew the differences between Sam Mills and the assistant D-line coach Jeff Scanina last year uh, and the year before. And when the season ended, when most teams make the kind of positional coach changes um, that uh, Washington made yesterday, two weeks into training camp. I mean, he knew those things. He knew the differences. My theory is this. Sam Mills III attended, with an excused absence, the enshrinement of his father into the Hall of Fame last weekend in Canton. And for the first time since he arrived in Washington, uh, and Ron Rivera and his entire staff arrived in Washington, Rivera got a chance to see how the team was coached without Sam Mills nearby. And he liked what he saw. He already had an inkling philosophically that Scanino aligned more with the way he wanted the position coached. He also knew that there was a lot of, as I described yesterday, pushback on Sam Mills from the beginning. This was known to a lot of us early in 2020, all right, the early in the 2020 season. I talked about it back then. There was a lot of you know, uh, a lot of confrontation going on, a lot of pushback from the players on the way they were being coached by Sam Mills. By the way, a guy who had not really ever played in the league, Skinina did. Uh, and so uh, Rivera's felt the push to move on from Sam Mills and have Coach Z, Jeff Skinina, you know, take over for a while. I think it happened yesterday because he, for the first time, got a chance to see what it was like without Sam Mills coaching practices, coaching the team, because he missed a few days to watch his father posthumously be enshrined into the Hall of Fame. That's my theory. I'm sticking with it. I don't know if there's something that happened over the last couple of days that just finally was enough uh, of enough situation for Ron Rivera. Um, but I think it's possible that on Saturday night at FedEx Field and on Friday and on Sunday and, you know, uh, and even on Monday, um, although I think Mills was back on Monday, but for a couple of days he had a chance to see what it would be like without Sam Mills. It was a hard decision for him. The Mills are, are, you know, have been a big part of the Carolina Panther family and, and the Ron Rivera coach teams. Um, and he's had Sam Mills the third working for, for him for a while. So it's not an easy thing that he did. Um, but uh, that's my theory on why it happened yesterday.
One more thing that I wanted to get to before we get to the uh, interview um, for the day with Bennett Conlon from uh, the publication uh, SportsHandle.com, uh, and it's a conversation about sports betting and the business of sports betting and what happened this morning with Dan Snyder and the Gaming Commission uh, in Maryland and how close he is to getting a license to build a sports book at FedEx Field. I got this tweet uh, after my rant yesterday on Kevin Durant and even on radio this morning. Um, Kevin Durant gave uh, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets an ultimatum uh, last week in London saying it's me or it's Nash and Marks. Steve Nash, the coach, Sean Marks, the general manager. Pick one. Uh, there's your ultimatum. It's either me or it's both of them. Uh, and I just said, you know, my answer to Kevin Durant at this point would be a uh, no. They're not going anywhere. So you choose what your path is. You're under contract with us for the next four years. We signed that contract a year ago, uh, a four-year contract extension worth $198 million. I've given you every single thing you have wanted. You got to pick the coach. You got to pick players. And you're not having that choice anymore. I'm taking back the franchise, and I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the franchise. And unless I get the all-time of all-time trade offers, you're either going to play for me or you can sit and not get paid. That's my position now. Because I've had it, yes, with certainly the players wielding all the power that they wield in the NBA. Um, but that's what the league is, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But in this particular case, I think Kevin Dan- uh, Durant has crossed a line. You you don't sign a contract last year after you're given every single thing that you want. You get eliminated in the first round, and now you want that coach that you and Kyrie wanted hired, fired, or else. You don't give ultimatums now, not a year after signing that contract. Not without a playoff series win. And he hasn't, he hasn't won one playoff series in Brooklyn. And I understand he was one toe away from the Eastern Conference Finals and perhaps an NBA championship a year ago in the NBA playoffs when they were being played during the summer of 2021. But my answer to Kevin Durant at this point was would be grow up, you signed the contract. I gave you everything you wanted. There's no way in hell I'm trading you unless I get the all-time of all-time offers and nobody's come close. You're playing for me or you can sit your ass out and I'm not paying you. And so with that, I got this tweet from Anthony. Anthony tweeted, what's your position on owners in front office when they make moves you don't agree with? Are they also dumb and immature? Uh, I called Kyrie Irving dumb and immature. Um, uh, That take on KD, Kyrie, and Ben Simmons was trash. You seem to have disdain towards the leverage these players wield. Um, Well, first of all, my position on owners and front office people when they make dumb moves is to call them out for those moves, moves, as most of you know. No, I I do not back away from criticizing owners and front office people. Um, And if you believe that I have, then this is your first day listening. Um, But um, the, the, the difference between owners and front office people, but owners in particular, is they have the ultimate in responsibility that the players don't have for the health and well-being of the franchise. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders and to the other owners in the organization. 
You know, they gave KD everything he wanted, and they've won nothing. And now he's giving ultimatums, which, by the way, are not in the best interest of the organization? No. This time, the owner's response should be no. Sorry. We're going to do what's in the best interest of us, not of you anymore. That would be my answer. But you know what? They'll probably kowtow to him because that's the way this league runs. But I don't think it's good for the league with Kevin Durant's putting them through. And the irony of it for me is that Kevin Durant is a major gamer, man. Uh, if, if If he went back at Kevin Durant that way, Kevin Durant would play. He loves to play. He is a guy that will show up and will play to the best of his ability. He's not going to mail it in. If you don't get the all-time trade offer, you can't trade him. I really do wonder why Kevin Durant chose Brooklyn and chose Kyrie Irving in particular. I know he wanted to set out on his own and not be tied to Curry and Draymond and Clay Thompson. He was the best player on those teams. I think anybody that watched those games understands that. Now, would he have won titles without Steph and Draymond and Klay Thompson? No, but he was the best player on that team. And I know he wanted to set out and and kind of create, uh, you know, a no-brainer legacy where, well, then he went to Brooklyn and won a couple of titles there. But, man, leaving Steph for Kyrie Irving, that nut job, um. The Brooklyn Nets' best opportunity to win is to keep Kevin Durant, to keep Kyrie Irving, and to have Ben Simmons finally play. By the way, I don't know if anybody read it, but Ben Simmons was on a group chat before Game 4. I think Rick Buecher uh, reported this before Game 4 of their series against Boston. And the team, the players on the group chat said, are you going to play in Game 4? And he left the chat. And at that point, Kevin Durant reportedly said, What am I doing here? All right. uh, Up next, an interview on sports betting and what happened this morning with Dan Snyder and the Maryland Gaming uh, Commission. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. All right. So we played in the opening segment of the podcast the audio from Dan Snyder. You don't hear Dan Snyder's voice very often. Uh, We heard it uh, this morning with uh, the discussion um, that he had with the Maryland, uh, you know, state lottery uh, that manages giving out these licenses for sports books. Um, And I came across this morning the uh, Twitter account of Bennett Conlon. Bennett writes for Sports Handle, which is, for all intents and purposes, an online magazine that covers sports betting, you know, throughout the country, including, uh, you know, really throughout North America, including um, Canada as well. And I invited Bennett to come on the show. I, I want to get to what the significance of today was. Um, I've already talked a little bit about Snyder's comments related to stadium upgrades and finally having a quarterback. Those are more uh, non-sports betting um, uh, issues. But I'm very interested in in sports betting um, as a lifelong sports better and someone who has talked a lot about gambling on my various shows over the last 15-plus years. 
Um, but you really have a handle, I believe, on how it's going and how it works um, in all of these different states. So I, I want to start with this right now. How many states right now in the United States don't have sport, uh, legal sports betting? Of the 50. Yeah, so I think it's just it's just over 30 that have it. So you're looking at, I think it's you know just below 20 states that do not have legal sports betting. Technically, Maryland does, even though they've yet to launch mobile betting. Right. They've got physical sports books where you can go in and place right. bets, but they don't have mobile betting. We'll get to that. Um, you know, in, in, in a few minutes. But of those states, what are the big-time successes? And, you know, how many states have really fallen far short of projected revenue goals? Yeah, I think, I mean, a decent number of them do fall short, uh, especially in the DMV area. You've had some, some pretty high lofty expectations. So, like, Washington, D.C. is one that's a jurisdiction that's that's fallen short. I think Maryland, in terms of how long it's taken to launch mobile, has been disappointing. But like Virginia's going to done a good job. They have mobile only betting, so uh, currently no casinos there, um, and, and no physical sports betting. But something that will come in the future. So Virginia's done well in the DMV area. We've got other states like Arizona is one that launched really quickly and seems to have um, decent revenue figures and and things like that. So it kind of varies by state. Each state has kind of wonky and weird legislation. So um, a lot of different specifics depending on which state you're addressing. Why hasn't it worked in the DMV? Yeah, so for D.C., they awarded like a sole source contract to Intralot, which runs the Gambit D.C. app. Um, and, and that app is, is the predominant one that's available for mobile betters, and it's just not a very good app. Uh, the odds are kind of unfair, the interface is clunky. So nothing about that is particularly effective. So then you have a few stadium sports books where people are allowed to bet uh, in the stadium Capital One Arena. you got Audi Field, Nats Park. Um, but if you can only bet in that location, it's obviously not particularly convenient. Yeah, I... I mean, the launch in D.C., the first thing, and I talked about it here in the podcast, and, you know, there was a little bit of conflict for me because all of these sports books have been spending, you know, a ton of money on radio and podcasts um, to sort of, you know, grab land uh, in, in what I would still categorize and describe as the wild, wild west and legal sports betting right now. And the obvious thing to someone like me was just how – you know, expensive it was. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a small better, who cares if you're paying minus one twenty five on on a straight bet loss? You know, but if you are betting, you know, a larger sums of money, it really adds up. And I thought initially that would be a turnoff. Um, and then the mobile app obviously had many of its issues as well. What do you think the biggest problem? DC had initially was it the pricing was it the fact that the app wasn't very convenient what what do you, what would you how would you rank why it it hasn't done that well in DC Yeah I think kind of again going to your point it depends on which sort of segment of betters you're looking at so if you're someone who's wagering more money I think the odds would probably upset you a little bit more in the pricing if you're someone who's only wagering a few dollars you know, the fact that you might have to spend five minutes digging for 
some sort of bet would be really frustrating, right? It's hard on there to do like a same game parlay or a parlay, whereas if you're using a DraftKings or FanDuel, they almost build the the parlays for you in some cases. So um, I think if you're not betting a lot, that was kind of an issue. You also had areas that are on federal land where you're not allowed to bet. So the geofencing was a nightmare depending on where you were and where you could actually use the app. So there's there's a number of issues um, that, that were kind of affecting D.C. sports betting. We're, we're talking to Bennett Conlon. Bennett, again, um, writes for Sports Handle, which covers sports betting um, throughout the country. You can follow Bennett, by the way, on Twitter um, at, uh, at Bennett Conlon, um, which is spelled B-E-N-N-E-T-T-C-O-N-L-I-N. Uh, a good Irishman um, joining us here on the show uh, today. So, uh, you know, from the jump um, when it came to legalizing sports betting, I always felt as a better myself and a long time better, there were going to be two major issues for people like me. Number one was credit. You know, I bet on credit. I've had a, I've been able to bet on credit for my entire life pretty much. Um, and then number two was, you know, the convenience um, and, you know, being able to, you know, log on from wherever I've been, you know, betting illegally over a long period of time and make a wager. Um, and, you know, then after learning about some of the initial legal sports books and looking at pricing, that was, of course, going to be an issue as well. How many longtime illegal sports bettors do you believe have shifted to legal sports betting versus legal sports betting attracting the person that never had access to illegal sports betting? Sure. I think some certainly switch over, right? If you're using an illegal sports book and then DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, whatever comes to your state or jurisdiction, there's certainly some, some intrigue in trying those out. But if you're like a professional better or a sharp better, and you're, you know, pretty good at betting and winning a lot of money and wagering a lot of money, the, the major operators are going to limit your bets. So if you're betting, you know, a Barstool Sportsbook or, or DraftKings or whatever, and you're wagering thousands of dollars and you're hitting at a pretty impressive rate, you know, 55 60%, whatever, they're going to limit your bets and you could go from betting, you know, $5,000 on a game to only being allowed to bet like $11. So in that case, you're certainly not going over to the legal sportsbooks it would obviously dramatically reduce the type of, of money you're able to bring in. Um, so in that situation, I don't think people are are looking for the legal sports book. But if you're you know wagering twenty bucks and you're hitting at fifty percent or whatever and losing a little bit of money, I think then you might take advantage of that and, and certainly use the the platforms and the interfaces that maybe have more promotions or, or boosts or things like that than you might see on, on an offshore sports book. Introduce me to the person that's hitting 60% on the regular. Um, and, and I, I'd like to meet that uh, person that's 60% or higher <laughs> um, on the regular, but, but uh, in all seriousness though, I'm not sure. And I, I'm not being critical, but I, I just, I'm not sure you answered the question. I, I'm curious as to whether or not there's any data out there that you know sort of reflects who is using legal sports betting in this 30 plus states where it's legal are they brand new bettors are they former fantasy people that never had the access or is it you know 
a, a mix of those and people who have been betting illegally over the years? Yeah, I think it's it's a mix. I don't think there's a ton of specific data in terms of each you know, individual better state by state in terms of whether they've used illegal sports books or how often they do or things like that. But yeah, there's certainly a mix. I think there are people who probably haven't bet before um, that are that are getting into it, especially with the level of promotion and it becoming sort of more widespread. But yeah, in terms of actual figures and data, I'm not sure how much is is actually widely available, at least to the public. Do you have any idea what the average bet size, just let's call it a straight bet on 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 a sporting event, is legally? Um, I think it, it obviously varies depending on the person. Um, in terms of the average bet, I, I can't imagine it's more than like twenty to fifty dollar range. I would think it's it's reasonably low, but I'm not entirely sure on that figure. I think it, it varies a lot depending on person because you're certainly going to have people. Um, who do have larger bankrolls and a wager higher amounts. The average, not entirely sure, because it depends, I guess, a little bit on the split of people who are just putting five bucks down and people who are consistently wagering hundreds of dollars. Yeah, I always thought that the projected revenues for a lot of these states would come in under what they were projecting because I thought the bet size would be much smaller than they were projecting. Again, because the the attraction was for someone who hadn't had the access and, by the way, wasn't betting on credit. Uh, and that limits typically just psychologically how much you're going to wager on a game when you actually have right. to put the, put the money up. Um, what do you think happens to illegal sports betting? I'm talking about offshore illegal sports betting. I think it certainly stays around, at least for the near future, because if you're Someone, and I would imagine it's primarily sort of sharp or professional bettors who are you know, hitting over 50% of their bets and want to be able to, to wager without limits or with high um, wager limits, whereas at the, the current situation, the U.S. sports betting landscape, most of the national operators are going to, to have pretty low limits if you're a sharp. Um, so I think in that capacity, it certainly stays around. You've got some uh, sports books out there kind of in the Vegas area. I think like Circus Sports is one. Uh, that has significantly higher limits. So, you know, if they move into more states, maybe um, professional bettors are, are more willing to use those. But I think for the most part, if you're a professional better, a shark, and you've got, you know, the ability to wager as much as you want, then the offshore sports book uh, is a pretty good option. Yeah, the, the illegal guys will limit you too uh, if you start to win too much. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I, I, I understand the point. So... What do you make of the last few years, this incredible push on promotion, marketing, um, advertising, um, and, you know, who will come out the winners? Do you have do you have a feel for that? And how many big winners will there be? Yeah, I mean, you look at like a, a FanDuel, DraftKings, Caesars, BetMGM, you would imagine at a certain point, They'll kind of push out maybe some of the, the smaller players in the industry, which you've seen a little bit, like Twin Spires is one that I think they're stopping their online sports betting uh, initiatives. They've sort of been in horse racing in the past and wanted to see if they could go into online sports betting and were realizing probably not a huge place for them in the national market. So it's going to be a handful of major winners, especially if there are more states that are legalized and you can go state to state whether you're traveling or whatever and use your FanDuel or DraftKings app pretty much anywhere uh, becomes pretty convenient for a recreational or casual better. So 
Um, it's probably just going to be a handful, I would think, of, of major winners. Um, and at a certain point, they're also going to have to, you know, cut back on marketing spend, which we've seen a little bit. I think Caesars has talked about how they're trying to reduce some of what they've done with, with marketing spend. Um, at a certain point, it becomes overkill and obviously pretty hard to become profitable for you're spending so much on marketing yeah i mean i'm curious do you have any idea you know how much um you know a legal sports book i mean take any of the big guys what their customer acquisition costs are you know what they spend to acquire one customer relationship do you have any idea what that number is i'm just curious i don't know a ton on that one it's a certainly a good question i think sometimes they they try to keep some of that to themselves but um it certainly seems Maybe a little bit higher than they would like, and I, I imagine there's also some um, some unnecessary advertising costs at this point. As um, there's a little bit of word of mouth and, and things like that with FanDuel and DraftKings that can certainly carry them a bit, where it seems like occasionally some of their marketing spend is is probably unnecessary if they're they're getting some customers without maybe the excessive number of ads. I think you've also got customers that have been pretty open in a number of states that. They're kind of turned off when they have to watch a football game and they get 12 DraftKings ads. So um, I know that can be a little frustrating. I do think the NFL, uh, if I'm not mistaken, has a certain limit to what's what's allowed in terms of, of ads per game and things like that. But if you know you're entering a market and your your TV station is blowing up with ads and you got billboards and everything, it can be uh, overkill for some customers who are not wagering a lot. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um... Because we've gone, you know, 180 degrees over the last four to, to five years, you know. I mean, it was only seven, eight years ago where, you know, you had the NFL major networks barely even mentioning point spreads. And now, you know, you've got in-game numbers coming across crawls. Um, so for people who don't care, and not everybody does care about betting, and there are a lot of NFL fans and a lot of football fans who don't bet, um, I, I could see that becoming a little bit uh, uh, over um, overly intrusive. Um, the you know the customer acquisition acquisition costs right now have to be super high because of you know this land grab that's going on. But the lifetime value of a customer relationship, most of them, is pretty valuable, isn't it? Do you, do you know anything mm-hmm. about what they? You know, if they grab a customer and that customer makes that first deposit, what the value of that customer is on average? I don't know the average specific there, but yes, I do know that that's a, an important point for some of the major operators. There's a, a genuine belief that if they're able to grab a customer uh, right when they enter a market, that they could have them, you know, for the course of their betting lifetime, which could be decades. So um, that's sort of the reason for the, the heavy marketing push is if you can become one of the three to five major players in the U.S. that could have some pretty significant value for a long time. You also see um, sort of the, the percentages and the, the revenue that companies are able to bring in with online casino, which is only in a handful of states right now, but that uh, brings in a whole lot more money than, than sports betting does. So right. I think there's certainly a push there, and you've got you know major players that are involved with that as well. And if you can get a, a sports better um, to, to then use your online casino platform, right? It's obviously just, just adding to your potential uh, revenue and profits. I, I'm actually curious about that. So online casino betting, you know, playing online blackjack, online poker, online craps, et cetera, is a much more profitable venture for, for an online casino than sports books. I, I would guess that that's true, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's much harder to win if you're of a course. customer playing those games. There's obviously yeah. some, some edges you can get with sports betting that you can't get on online casino. Yeah. That, that's right. And then on top of that, I would I would guess there's more interest that the potential volume is higher. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly uh, a lot of interest in that, and I think it's a, a reason why you've got you know certain platforms that are or, or companies that are trying to, to be involved in both because you can take advantage of the customers that are that are doing both. So that's one. It's it kind of depends a little bit on the state, obviously, and which ones are able to have both but like Michigan's one that has sports betting and online casino and the majority of sort of the tax revenue going back to Michigan comes from the casino online casino as well yeah interesting um and you know a lot of these places I'm sure want online race books as well I don't know what that generates in terms of revenue but um I'm sure the profits are pretty high we're, we're talking to Bennett Conlon Bennett writes uh for sports handle uh a an online magazine, essentially, that covers the sports betting industry. Um, and you wrote extensively, you guys wrote extensively this morning about what happened this morning uh, with Dan Snyder appearing um, before the Maryland Lottery and Gaming Control Commission uh, to get uh, a license to put a sports book into FedEx Field. So um, I played the audio of it. Dan was not available, you know, by Zoom. He he called in uh, to this and you know, we, we heard his voice for the first time, really, I think probably since the debut of the new name um, uh, in early February uh, of, of this year. But tell everybody, explain to everybody what Washington, uh, what FedEx Field, if you will, qualified for today. Sure, yeah. So Maryland has kind of a clunky process for getting approved for sports betting licenses. Uh, they don't have mobile licenses out yet. There's sort of a hope that at some point soon they'll launch mobile sports betting. But uh, so basically Dan Snyder, the commanders, uh, FedEx Field, they have applied for a retail facility license at FedEx Field. So they were speaking in front of the lottery today um, and they were approved. So it's initial approval from the lottery, which is sort of the first step in the like three-step process, I guess. So they've got that initial approval from the lottery to have a sports book at FedEx Field. Um, I would think next week when there's a, um, it's a SWORC meeting, so it's the Sports Wagering Application Review Commission in Maryland. Um, they're the next step in the process. You need approval from them, and they are then able to technically award your retail facility license. And then you go back to the lottery for some final checks once you sort of have your your setup and your location up and running and the lottery comes and observes like a day or two of a soft launch to make sure that, that everything's in order and that you're, you know, doing everything legally, whatever. So there's still a couple steps there left. Um, but yeah, it's sort of paving the way for a sports book at FedEx field, although cam commanders are not given a ton of information on their sort of official plans with that. Well, I was going to ask you what the, the actual calendar on that would be like, what is the, What's the earliest an actual sports book could be up and operating at FedEx Field? Yeah, so the SWORC meeting is scheduled for August 17th, which is you know a week from today when we're talking. And um, from there, typically, I mean, I haven't yet with any of the retail facilities, if you make it to the SWORC meeting and you get through the lottery approval, it would be pretty shocking if the SWORC didn't award the license. So you should get the license at that point. It's August 17th. 
Um, and then from there, it's really up to the, the facility and how fast the facility can move and how fast the people do that. So there have been some smaller sports betting facilities in Maryland that have gotten licenses and it's taken them months to launch the sports book. But that's because they're looking for a sports betting partner, an operator, right? So uh, most of these places don't have expertise in running a sports betting operation, but they can get the license for their facility. And then they partner with like a DraftKings or someone like that, and they'll handle uh, the operational part of getting everything up and running there. So um, if you have that in place, you can go pretty fast from when the SWORC gives you a license. I mean, like as short as like a week or two weeks, it can go really fast from when the SWORC gives you a license to when um, you can launch the sports book. You just have to have everything in place and ready because the lottery is just waiting for you at that point to, to be ready to go. Who will be Washington's sportsbook partner? Is there an NFL sportsbook partner that they have to use? No. So they haven't announced anything officially, but I believe the Washington, Washington Business Journal had reported at some point, maybe a month or so ago, um, they had seen some work orders for a Fanatic sportsbook at FedEx Field. So that's sort of the rumored one at this point. Nothing's official on that, um, but that, that seems like that could potentially be uh, the partner for the commanders in FedEx Field. Uh, tell me about Fanatics as a sportsbook operator. Yeah, so they're they're getting into sports betting. They don't really have right. a whole lot of experience in that realm, right? They're kind of known for, for <laughs> selling gear and all that stuff, but um, they've gone into a lot of different areas in sort of the, the sports industry, and now they're looking to get into sports betting. So um, there's not a ton to know at this point about, about them and, and what they're doing. Obviously, it's a a massive company and one that's trying to grow. So I think interesting to see if that is the partner, what it could lead to and what it would look like. And um, I guess how quickly they'd be able to turn it around from getting the license from the SWORC and then launching and then also having, you know, an operation that pleases fans and makes sense and, and is good and works. Yeah. I, I mean, we know here and you're from here, right? You live in this area, don't you? Yeah. Um, And so we know how much this organization has botched things over the years. And this is a pretty important thing in terms of the introduction and the rollout of it, not to botch it. You know, we saw what happened in D.C. um, when it rolled out. And I know mobile betting is not available, and that's going to be my next question. But, you know, going Mm -hmm. with essentially a brand new startup sportsbook, uh, you know, uh, partner seems a bit risky. I mean, you don't have, you know, this is going to be for them, I would think another way to draw people to their stadium because their team hasn't done that in recent years. Would you consider going with kind of a startup sportsbook to be high risk or would they get some sort of preferential deal? That's that's kind of an interesting point of it, yeah. So typically you'll have right the the facility or whatever is going to negotiate with the operator for whatever revenue split they want. So I wonder maybe if you can have the commanders and FedEx Field are able to get one that's sort of beneficial for them that then maybe they wouldn't have had in terms of a revenue split with with a larger operator. I think Fanatics has a pretty big operation, so I do think that uh, once they enter the space, I wouldn't expect them to to necessarily have a ton of struggle. So I don't think it's it's not like you're working with like a, a mom and pop startup or anything that's that's that risky. But there's certainly some risk involved, especially depending on how fast they're trying to move, which I'm not sure. But like if you're trying to get it up early in the NFL season or something like that, like what is the plan for that? What does it look like? How is how much is already you know 
been worked on or whatever or gotten planned out and, and what's that all going to look like in the future so maybe more risk than using someone who's already you know a proven brand in the space um, but certainly one that I think could possibly still work out for them I mean, would you see, let, let's just say they get this license. You expect them to get this, right? I mean, the lottery investigated Snyder and all of the toxic workplace stuff, and they came back, you know, mm-hmm. from a financial standpoint, approving him to get to this next step. You're expecting that they get this license and that they're going to open up a sports book at FedEx Field, right? There's yet to be a facility that's gone to this work at this stage and not gotten okay, so, so yes, I would expect So uh, I'm just curious, Do you would you think it would look like what it looks like at Capital One, which is an actual sports book slash, you know, restaurant, et cetera, in the stadium somewhere, attached to the stadium somehow, somehow or would it be a bunch of kiosks set up you know, uh, throughout the stadium, because unlike Capital One, which is a downtown location, a Chinatown location where you see people in there betting on non-game nights, you know, this is an eight, you know, an eight to nine date a year sports facility in Landover. I I can't imagine. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I guess people will come there on a Tuesday afternoon to bet if it's open. But, you know, how do you see it just envisioning it? looking um because it's different than a capital one that has all of those dates for the caps and wizards and then has all of the foot traffic of a downtown location sure i mean i would expect it to be more of that sports book type thing as opposed to just just kiosk i think the some of the reason that some locations do it and obviously it's, it's certainly not the same type of location but is the idea that the facility then gets a little more use around so um, there are some stadiums that like it just because it, it generates some people coming in and out or whatever um, to use the sports book during the year. Obviously, it's not you know in downtown DC, so that's certainly a difference there that that is certainly worth noting. But the other thing too that I'm interested to see is like Capital One Arena, you can't like see the arena from the sports book, so it's not like if you're going for like a game day experience. I wouldn't go to the Capital One Arena Sportsbook or like Nats Park. You don't have field access from that right. that MGM Sportsbook, so there's kind of a weird spot there. But then the one at Audi Field um, I with FanDuel is that one's actually pretty cool. It's smaller, but it's directly on the field. Mm-hmm. You need like a specific ticket on game day to go in. So like they have like soccer balls that are going out of play that are bouncing into the sportsbook. So it's like an actual game day experience that's cool. So I think. Are you doing that? I think that would something be something that would probably be a little more interesting if you can watch the game and also be at the sports book. Otherwise, it's, it's still somewhat interesting. You can place bets or whatever, but I don't know. Once you get mobile in Maryland, you'd have mobile options in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. So if you're going to the game, is it really worth going to the sports book if you can't see the field? Probably not at that point. All right. Uh, two more questions for you. Um, this has been great. Uh, and, and we'll finish with mobile betting, but I want to ask you real quickly. I told you for someone like me over the years um, and doing it the way I've done it, you know, legal sports betting, I understand the attraction and I understand, by the way, the overall benefit 
um, for all of, of the major sports. Um, it actually reminds me, like I, I laughed and I, and I bet you did too, when the leagues wanted some sort of an integrity fee early on, you know, from, from sports books and the sports books <laughs> just laughed and said, what are you talking about? We're the ones that have been keeping these games, uh, the integrity of these games. We're the ones that have been letting you know about some of the, you know, odd gambling and, and odd betting on, on various games. But um, do you envision people being able to bet legally on credit? Uh, I mean, it's, it's something, I guess, that maybe it depends sports book to sports book, but it's, I don't know, there's certainly, um, you know, each, each state also has certain rules in terms of, of what's allowed and what isn't allowed. I know some are more strict than others. Um, so, so I'm not entirely sure that that's something that, um, you know, would, would necessarily uh, be allowed. It's something that I think would be interesting and it's sort of the, the industry evolves and, and changes and, and things like that. Maybe there are some, some alterations there, but it depends on, on what's going on. And, and you say credit, you don't mean credit cards, I'm assuming? Well, I mean, that would be one way to do it. I mean, to offer credit cards, obviously, with an APR, you know, with an interest rate, um, sure. but allowing them to, you know, to essentially use you know, credit. Yeah. I mean, it, it'd be the same thing. You're, you, you establish some sort of credit line and then you can, can use that credit line to wager without having, you know, Got it. okay. Yeah. So the, there, I mean, there are some states that allow you to lose, use like your own credit card to, sure. to wager and things like that. Um, I, I have a hard time depending on the state, especially at this point, um, that would let you maybe get, you know, make a, a credit card or whatever with, a sports book or something like that, just because of the concern of potential problem gambling and gambling addiction. I think there was like a, a smaller sports book in in um, Tennessee that did something with um, like loans. You could take out loans, and I think the regulators were, were pretty pissed <laughs> in Tennessee and kind of fired up about that when you were yeah. able to sort of take out loans to right. to place bets. So I think your own credit card, sure, but I think it'll certainly be a while until. You could have like a, a sports book card okay. or something so, along those So lines. let's let's finish up with mobile betting. Maryland doesn't have it yet. This has to be one of the real keys because you don't want to have to physically go to a sports book to place a wager, especially on non game days, um, but even on game days. So where is Maryland with mobile betting? Um, and what you know, how can anybody get a license to do that? Go ahead. Yeah, so Maryland's got sort of a, a weirder set of rules than, than most states. They have up to 60 mobile licenses, which is kind of absurd, and I don't think anyone, I don't know that it's actually going to go up to 60. Um, Virginia's, I think, at like right around like 15. Um, so 60 is kind of, kind of wild. But um, there's a meeting with the SWORC, which we talked about earlier on the 17th. I would expect them to address uh, the retail license for FedEx Field. I would also expect them to address the mobile timeline and when a mobile launch could occur. So there have been some regulations that this work has sort of put together for mobile betting. I think the public comment period on that goes pretty much through the end of August. So they've still got to wait for that, but they're expecting once they can get some of that stuff in, then you set the regulations. Um, and then you can sort of have your applications out there and published, and then from there you can move rather quick, quickly. So uh, Governor Larry Hogan was kind of fired up because they've taken a really long time to get mobile going. There was a ballot measure in 2020 that, that legalized sports betting in Maryland. Right. So um, it's been a while, and, and 
probably the slowest launch in the country to actually get mobile betting out there. So Hogan wanted them to have it by the start of the football season, NFL season, which is September 8th. That feels a little optimistic to me. I think that's probably a little aggressive, but I would think at some point during the NFL season, so whether that's you know fall of 2022 or, or bleeding into early 2023. So at some point soon it's coming, which is kind of what they've said for a while, but it feels like they're actually making a little progress. I just don't know if it's enough progress to be up and running by the start of the NFL. So they're offering 60 mobile licenses. licenses. So I'm assuming that that means that, you know, the big guys, you know, BetMGM and FanDuel and DraftKings and Caesars, et cetera, get some of those mobile licenses. And then, you know, who else gets them? Do the physical, you know, uh, brick-and-mortar sports books also get uh, get sort of preferential are they at the top of the list of, of those that would be given licenses for that? I mean, do they go hand in hand of, of getting a, a, a license for a physical sports book and, and that also comes with a mobile uh, uh, license as well when it becomes legal? How does that part work? Yeah, so separate applications. So if you're a big player, it's, it's not really much of an issue. You just apply, right? You'll get the, the mobile-only license or whatever, but it's a $500,000 application fee. So I think originally when they wrote some of the legislation, the idea was they wanted small businesses, um, both minority-owned and female-owned, to have a stake in sports betting in Maryland. Um, so I think for some of those locations, you've seen some already, like Longshots is a, a woman-owned business that's going to have Betfred as their sports book, and they'll have a retail location, which is great, and they're you know obviously entering the industry and all that stuff. But they're probably not shelling out $500,000 to then be a very, very small fish in right this pond that's going to have FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, Caesars, all these sports books. So they're taking a long time trying to come up with different rules and regulations to, to make sure that um, there's sort of a diverse base of ownership within the industry. But then they've also set up regulations and application fees that all but guarantee that like some of those small businesses can't. Right. enter the market. So I think there are people who are frustrated with how long it's taking um, for that reason. But yeah, I mean, I don't think they're awarding up to 60 because if you're a small business and you're going to spend, you know, half a million dollars to, to get a mobile license, realistically, no one's going to use their sports book over uh, a major operator that they're familiar with that's already in the market before them. So I don't think they'll actually get close to awarding 60. Yeah, because to, to to go ahead and apply for one of the 60 and shell out $500,000 for what you, what did you call it? The application fee? Yes. Yeah. So what are the other costs involved? Do you have any idea? Is that it? Yes. I mean, you've, you've obviously, it's the fee is a big one, but then there's, I forget if it's three or five years, it might be five, but then there's like a renewal fee, right? So um, you're also getting taxed on all the revenue you create. And most of the small businesses, understandably, don't have any expertise in this. So then you would also have to partner with an operator, and the operator is a significant cost. How much of the revenue are you going to split? Is the operator really going to be okay with you getting more than, like, 50%? Probably not of the revenue that's generated from the mobile sports book. So it, it's kind of a really challenging position to be if you're and then this, and, and doesn't the state take a tax out of it as well? Fifteen percent revenue tax, yeah. So I mean, like, <laughs> you, <laughs> there's really no situation when you're a small business in Maryland that it would probably make sense. Like, I don't know how you would make money off it. I think you might lose money, and then you add in the fact that you know, what if the 
the public has a good month's betting, right? Because <laughs> sometimes that happens. Yeah. And you don't have a, fun that. a high enough hold. Or, yeah, and you could be losing money. So it's, it's one that I think some, you know, Maryland residents have kind of caught on that, you know, maybe it didn't need to take this long because some of the stuff they're doing to, to help small businesses is pretty much negated by some of the fees that they have as well. Yeah, not to mention what you just said is you're putting them into a potential high-risk business. Now, you'd much rather be on that side of the betting equation than on the side that many <laughs> who are listening are on. But the truth of the matter is um, is sports books do have bad months where the public, where their consumers win money. And you've got to be able to, you know, you got to be able to fund, the, and you've got to do it from the beginning because, because who knows, maybe it's the first month that ends up being your worst month. And you've got to be able, be able to absorb right. those losses and pay out um, those losses uh, to uh, eventually they will, um, you know, they're not going to beat you, um, but uh, but it can happen um, every once in a while. Um, well, interesting stuff uh, for sure. By the way, Virginia, uh, D.C. has mobile betting, obviously, and Virginia does as well. They, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, they, they both have mobile betting in, in Virginia, certainly a little better, where they've got, you know, the national operators there, whereas uh, D.C., it's just Gambit D.C. for most of D.C., except for uh, the sports books and then a two-block radius around the sports books where you can use that mobile app, which isn't particularly convenient, really, unless you're, you know, going to a game or happen to be right. uh, from around that area. Uh, look, for all of you listening, um, I would continue to urge you to use – uh, the partner for this podcast, MyBookie at MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. They have fair lines. They have fair pricing. And these are the kinds of things that you need to look out for um, in, you know, a lot of the legal sports uh, betting uh, spots is, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to cover all of these costs that, that, that Bennett just went through. Um, and, and you know, the, the margins aren't what you think they are in some of these uh, legal sports books, so they've got to charge more in some cases. Um, my bookie uh, has fair pricing, fair lines, um, and you get paid. Uh, and all the promotions, all of the sign-up promotions that you're going to get in a lot of these uh, places, including, by the way, right now, doubling of your first deposit all the way up to $1,000. Use my promo code, Kevin DC. You see how I worked that in, uh, in what we call in content, uh, Reed Bennett, um, as we've been talking about the business of sports betting. Um, it is an interesting <laughs> one. I really appreciate the time. Uh, and I've, I've read some of your stuff and you're doing a great job covering, um, this business. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens, um, here in the coming years. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. Of course, a pro's pro on the ad read. Good work there. I don't know how many of you found that interesting, and I'm guessing not everybody, and I understand that. But I think the um, sports betting uh, world right now, as the states over the last several years have been legalizing sports betting, I think it's very interesting because I think that one of the early gut feels that I had is that many places that thought this was going to be a major cash windfall for states. Um, I predicted, if you remember, in conversations with Tommy early on, that I go, I didn't think that that was going to be the case necessarily. It is much better to be the house than the better. There's no doubt about it. But 
Um, you want uh, you want to be discerning when you bet. You know, especially if you're betting, you know, healthy amounts. You know, if you're betting 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks a game, it doesn't matter as much. But if you've been a better and and your unit size is you know, larger than that, and in some cases much larger than that, you want to make sure that you're not paying exorbitant, you know, uh, VIGs. You know, you shouldn't be paying any more than minus 110 on a straight bet loss. You know, that means you lose 110 bucks on a $100 bet. Now, there will be, there will be some where you've got, you know, in football, a line like three or seven where you've got a number where you're perhaps going to pay minus 115 at times. And there are obvious prop bets where you're going to pay more. Um, but uh, those are the things to, you know, to pay attention to as a better. Uh, but anyway, um, I enjoyed that. I just kind of found him on Twitter this morning because all of this news related to, you know, the commanders and Snyder and getting the license for FedEx Field um, was starting to break, and he was writing extensively about it. Um, You know, by the way, I mean, FedEx Field with a sports book, like I said in the open, you know, is going to be one of those things that they hope, I would imagine, will draw more people to the stadium paying for tickets, especially if that sports book is inside the stadium. Um, but, you know, for a football team, you know, it's harder to make one of those things work when you've only got eight to nine home dates a year. And again, Audi Field and Capital One Arena and Nats Park are in high density, high foot traffic areas. Uh, that, you know, for a lot of reasons with restaurants nearby, et cetera, are more attractive for people to make uh, a day or a night of it um, than perhaps FedEx Field uh, is. We'll see. Uh, I think that's one, one of the things they were thinking about with respect to the Virginia locations for a stadium is having full-fledged sports book with uh, with all of the you know restaurants and, and bars um, and retail around it. Uh, and eventually you're going to get that in Landover. We know that from the expenditures that are being made um, in some of the building projects that are going on. Um, I would imagine they're going to try to get this thing up and running at some point during this season. Uh, anyway, all right, that's it for the day. I'll be back tomorrow with Tommy. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.